Well, we are continuing this, this uh, values sermon series that, uh, as, as you guys know, we're leaning towards joining the group of churches called the Vineyard Group of Churches, and uh, they um, have uh, values that, they, that really shape uh, all the churches, and we're working through those for about six weeks. There's about six values, and so today we're looking at this value of um, pursuing culturally relevant mission in the world. It sounds like a mouthful. Let's break that down. What do we mean by culture? Okay, here's a definition of what culture is from an author named Andy Crouch, who I really appreciate. If you haven't read his stuff, read Andy Crouch's book. This is from his book, uh, Culture Making. That's what he says. This is how he defines culture. Culture is all of these things, paintings, whether finger paintings or the Sistine Chapel, omelets, chairs, snow angels. It's what anything is what human beings make of the world. It always bears a stamp of our creativity, our God-given desire to make something more than we were given. That's his definition of culture, okay? So if we define culture then, what does it mean to be relevant? Um, I forgot what dictionary, I didn't put what dictionary this was from, probably from Webster. Uh, we can define the word relevant just meaning connected with what is happening or something of you know, being discussed. So really what we're talking about this morning is the need for the church to be connected to or relevant to culture as we pursue God's mission in the world. But what does that mean? Right? What does it mean to be connected to culture? Because some, uh, many people that are Christians in the church will say, no, like, we, we, we don't connect to culture. Like, that's not something we do as the church. Um, we resist culture. We, we reject culture. Um, we push against it. Uh, Christian author and pastor Carl Vaders, he's very clear. One of his writings, he says, I don't care if the church is culturally relevant. Cultural relevance is not the answer. In fact, let Paul himself say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2 through 3. So doesn't the Bible call us then to be counter-cultural and not be connected to culture? But on the other hand, there's many Christian authors who have written many books about why the church should be culturally relevant and they give a great defense for it. So the question is, well, who was right? I mean, after all, this is an actual value of the vineyard movement itself. So who's right? And as my usual answer is both. They're both right to some degree, right? And we're going to break that down today. But it is incorrect, however, to say that the church should never be culturally relevant. We're going to look at the earliest days in the book of Acts this morning and see how uh, the, the good news of Jesus had to be shaped and communicated in a certain way within a culture of the, the early church's day in the Roman Empire and how that shaped a sermon that Paul preached in Acts 17. He had to be, you know, for lack of a better term, he, he had to learn to be culturally relevant himself. We're going to look at that later on. But just, just a thought experiment, okay, in terms of why um, the church should consider its cultural relevancy. Um, anybody use the internet before? Of course, Right? So imagine a church that's just like opposed to these things and says, we are opposed to the internet, lots of bad stuff on there, we're not involved in that. We're not getting wrapped up in the internet. 
So they have no website, they have no social media, they're not found on Google, there's zero internet presence, and they're trying to find the yellow pages again and like put their name in there. Anybody remember the yellow pages? Yeah. Felt like yesterday, that was probably like 20 years ago, right? But imagine like a church that you can only find in the yellow pages today. In other words, like they're invisible. You would not know they exist unless you like walked by their building, okay? So uh, if, if you're a first-time visitor to a church today, chances are you've watched the sermon online, you've live-streamed the service, you know, at home before you walked in the front door. So even being on the internet as a church means that you've adopted some sort of cultural relevancy because you kind of have to in some ways, right? There's also reasons why our music that we sing in our church is not sung in Nigerian or French, right? Because we, we sing English services, English music here would also be relevant to sing Hispanic music. If you look in our area, right, that would actually have value to do as well if we want to reach our community. The Bible itself was written in Greek and Hebrew, and I'm assuming nobody in this room right now has a Greek Bible in front of them. You have a translation into English of that Bible. Uh, you, I, I think you probably get my point now. Cultural relevancy is important for the church to consider as we are called to preach the good news of Jesus and share the gospel wherever we may be found. And we have to, to think about like what, what surrounds us, what culture does surround us, and how can we meaningfully communicate who Jesus is and what he did for us in our present context. So let's talk about first, sometimes it's helpful when we define a word to define what it doesn't mean. Okay, so here's what cultural relevancy, relevancy does not mean. Being culturally relevant does not mean getting lost in constantly responding to and or engaging cultural conversations, especially like the culture wars of modern times. Anybody love the culture wars in our country? They're so enjoyable, right? Like they're just so refreshing and just so happy and joyful when you see people dive deep into it. There was a recent big culture war over the Barbie movie, right? Um, some people loved it and they thought it was great. And I literally saw a pastor like mid-sermon like screaming against this Barbie movie as he had a baseball bat duct taped with a Bible around it as he smashed a Barbie dollhouse on the stage. That really happened. Like, true story, okay? It was hilarious. Like, that's a little extreme, okay? Um, I, I didn't preach a sermon on Barbie, sorry. Um, it just wasn't, we already forgot about the movie. That's what happens in our culture, right? These issues pop up like, oh, there's this, there's this issue. And then like two weeks later, like, we don't even remember what it was because our national psyche is, is so short, right? Everybody's talking about it and then everybody forgets about it. Um, we as a church are not guided to just respond to all those things all the time, right? That's not what it means to be culturally relevant. The same thing goes for constant engagement in political conversations. We're coming up on an election season, all right? I'm sure we're all terrified of the next election season, right? And what is gonna happen to us in our own country. And there will be some times when we have to talk about some things and like learn and, and, and be equipped as followers of Jesus to respond to some of these things that happen in our country, but those conversations still don't run or dictate who we are in our agenda as a church. 
right? We, we are not um, uh, to be swept up in whatever direction the culture goes. And especially uh, in a lot of the values that it goes. Being culturally relevant does not mean that we need to adopt the values of our culture if our church is to remain relevant. Meaning, you know, uh, conversations like sexuality or gender, value of life in the womb, the biblical meaning of marriage. There's certain things that our, our culture in these areas, they're, they're pushing into new directions of, of thought and value and, and teachings on these things. And biblically speaking, there's certain things as Christians that we don't budge on and we don't join the cultural winds and we begin embracing those things. I know a lot of churches would say, you know, would disagree with that statement, and I understand that. But there's certain things that we can interact with as a culture, certain things we say, no, like these things aren't going to shape us as followers of Jesus. And so there's some nuance here, there's some tension here, but we're going to dive in to this this morning and also at the end of our time together, a call. Like, like what is our responsibility as Christians to be culturally relevant in all of our lives as we are all our ambassadors of the good news? So we're going to break down um, kind of the guidelines or just principles or just you know, uh, uh, hopefully helpful pointers here when it comes to what we can embrace in our culture, what we could consider embracing, uh, things to critique in our culture, or just flat out rejecting, right, as followers of Jesus. Um, And as a church, being, you know, the presence of Christ here, like how do we navigate those things? So here's my definition of what it would mean to be a culturally relevant church. Okay, so don't take this for much of anything because it's my definition, but it's my attempt. Through word and deed, we should embody the ancient good news of Jesus in a modern, relevant way for the sake of our community. One more time. Through word and deed, we should embody the ancient good news of Jesus in a modern, relevant way for the sake of our community. This, this is kind of from the Apostle Paul himself. This is what he said. This is in 1 Corinthians. He said, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessing. A church then, should, generally speaking, be communicating the gospel in a meaningful way to its community, as Paul spoke of here. So it's not just our message, to to branch off of that, to emphasize, it's not just the message that, you know, is spoken up here or conversations that you have when it comes to what it means to be culturally relevant, but I don't know if you've thought about this before, but this book is full of letters. You know, this was written to people in uh, specific time periods in history who lived in real places, like written to real people. And for that audience, um, it, it was very meaningful. But did you know that you yourself are a living letter 
written by the ink of the Holy Spirit. If you follow Jesus this morning, you yourself are a walking, living letter. Paul says this. Are we be- this is 2 Corinthians 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Uh, he was talking to people who were, you know, kind of questioning his, you know, credentials and questioning Paul's, the Apostle Paul's abilities and all this kind of thing. He says, you, your, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. God brings the good news to this world through you, because you are a living letter. Right, the Bible is full of letters. We know this, but you yourself are a living letter. Have you? Um, this is our, still our authority in life. We we live beneath the authority of Scripture as we imperfectly seek to embody the good news of Jesus throughout our life. But here's the question: Like, have you considered that before? That you yourself might be the first quote unquote Bible somebody reads. Does that make sense? Your life may be the first quote unquote Bible. The first introduction to Christianity may be your life, your words, your love, your care, your service to your neighbors, how you talk to them, how you um, uh, treat them, how you serve them, all those things, that is a living representation of who Jesus is. And that shows that um, the gospel itself is very dynamic. It, 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 it can be embodied in so many various ways in the life of the church. So. Um, here's some principles to kind of guide us as we consider this idea of a church being culturally relevant. To begin with, Scripture is always our authority. We just said that, we'll say it again. Scripture is always our authority. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Jesus himself said, scripture cannot be broken. So we as a church have this interesting job of taking these ancient, timeless truths found in scripture and bringing them to the modern world. It's tough to remember this because the Bible feels so, we're just so, we can be so familiar with it, it's so accessible today. But this is a really old book. Like there's, there's books in here that are written like 3,000 years ago in their early forms. That's a long time ago, right? They were written in a different part of the world in different languages, right? This is a really old book, but it's still our authority. And the task, and I think it's somewhat of a skillful task, is to learn to understand it and then be able to communicate it into 2023, we need to do this in a meaningful, helpful way. If our nation or society embraces things that Scripture calls sin, or outside of God's design for humanity, Scripture remains our authority. And as we'll see later, sometimes things may pop up around us that actually are beautiful and wonderful in our culture. And we can say, yeah, like there's, there's a, a grace from God right there for our own society that that's present. And we can use that as even a bridge to talk about the good news of Jesus. We'll do that later. Um, but scripture is always our authority. Number two, how we interpret God's word 
to navigate living in our culture is very important when it comes to this cultural relevancy argument. So, um, for example, uh, there's a prophet named Jeremiah. He lived 500 years before Jesus. There was a problem in Israel of that day. Okay, I'm going to read this. Jeremiah 7 through 18. The children gather wood. The fathers light the fire. The women knead the dough and make cake make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to arouse to other gods to arouse my anger. That was God speaking to Jeremiah. Anybody struggle with being seduced to make cakes for the queen of heaven in this room today? Like probably not. That was an ancient Babylonian god named Ishtar, probably. And a lot of the religions from the surrounding uh, nations of Israel had kind of like seeped in to Israeli thought, uh, ancient Israel thought. And so they found themselves making cakes to the queen of heaven. And God said, no, like, that's not even a real God. Like, what are you doing? But if you guys don't struggle with making cakes to the queen of heaven, then what value does that verse have? How is that relevant for today? It's really about false worship, right? Do you have things in your life that you bow down to, look for hope in, that you look for almost your own salvation in? Right? I've seen people go to the gym um, in my life that really think if I just looked a certain way um, and I had my health and, and all those things were a certain way, like that, would, uh, that would be me. Like I, would, I, would, I, would be, uh, I would feel better about myself or I would feel like you know, uh, I myself is almost being rescued from this former self if I can just be in shape and, and, and you know, look jacked. Some men, you know, fall into that. But it's true, though. That can become a false idol, right? Just as much as alcohol, just as much as uh, really anything. Parenting can become a false idol, right? Is your hope wrapped up in your own kids? Well, that's, that can be an idol, too, right? And there's the conversation that comes out of making cakes for the queen of heaven. See how that works? And we have to be skilled readers of the Bible to be able to draw these things out as this is our authority and be able to communicate these things to our modern world. And so I want to look at an example of this. Along, we're going to read through the whole sermon here because Paul uh, was faced with this, okay? So you remember the gospel. Jesus was Jewish. He, he died in Jerusalem. Um, all of his disciples were Jewish. They all spoke Aramaic 2,000 years ago. Like the Christianity came out of Judaism, but Paul was really one of the pioneers that began bringing the Christian message to non-Jews, to uh, other people groups within the Roman Empire, and if you're talking, you can read some of his sermons when he preached the good news of Jesus to his Jewish audience. They knew the Bible. They, they knew their Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament that we call it today. And he could refer to the Old Testament regularly, make references, all the prophecies and how they pointed to Jesus and all these things. What happens, though, when you find yourself in Athens, Greece, where there, there was some Jewish people, there's a synagogue there, but... It was a university town. Nobody, uh, it was like a center of learning in ancient Rome. Nobody knew the Bible. Nobody had any idea who Abraham was or Isaac or Jacob. Or, they didn't know. But Paul had the good news of Jesus. How can he share it in a meaningful and relevant way? Let's look at what happens. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace. That's like the public 
place of shopping. He was there. He was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And someone said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Athens is like Newark, right? It is a university town. All the learned, smart people went to Athens to be educated and talk about philosophy and new ideas. Um, All the nerds lived there in Rome, all right? It was also just a city that was completely full of little statues representing gods and idols from all over the Roman Empire, right? They just kind of grabbed all these various gods and kind of put them together, and Athens just had temple after temple just full of these little statues, right? And word spread around that this guy was preaching something about a resurrection from somebody, and, and Paul was like, you know, he saw these idols and he was like provoked. He was like, this is, this is ridiculous. Look at, all these, look at all these idols, right? And as he was preaching, he was invited to go to a very public place. This Areopagus was like a um, big rock. It's actually still there in Athens. This big rock where people would go and kind of like, you know, have like a public speech and there would be conversations about it and there would be a way to like exchange ideas. And so Paul's invited to like be on this rock to essentially share about Jesus to these Athenians. And so let's look at how he does this, all right? Now keep in mind, these are Greeks. These are Greek nerds. Not like farmers or just like people, the regular blue collar kind of working class. Like, no, these are like, these are the nerds, okay? So if you're preaching to a bunch of nerds, you have to take that into account in your message, right? These are things that that impact uh, uh, how we talk about Jesus. And so, Here is Paul, beginning of verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet... He is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he quotes the Bible verse, and he quotes one of their own poets. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given 
to all, assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear about this again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Very interesting presentation from Paul here, right? He sees this this statue that says to an unknown God. And he says, all right, that's Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. You've been worshiping this unknown God. Let me tell you who that one is. Pretty interesting way to share the good news. Uh, He affirmed something. Said, you guys are very religious. Like, obviously. Like, all your temples are just completely full of gods. I can tell, like, you're, you're hungry for worship, like you're, you're hungry to worship God. And so let's talk about this some more, right? Let's talk about this. And there's the one unknown God. Let's talk about that one. His name is Jesus. He's, he's very creative in the way that he shares the good news. Very creative, kind of sly too, right? And he speaks of the God who made all things, right? You don't he, hear the names of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or, you know, Moses or anything. He talks about God made all things, Right, And even in the midst of this, he does quote a Bible verse, but he even quotes one of their own poets. This poet did not share the biblical worldview. He was not a Christian, probably didn't know Jesus or any of that, but he still grabbed something this poet wrote that was true, that was actually like capital T, truth. We are indeed the offspring of God. Paul pulls that out and says, even one of your own poets agrees with what I'm communicating here, that we are the children of God. And he quotes the poet. And so you see how he creatively brought the gospel to a, a people who had no knowledge of the Bible, and it was a relevant, meaningful message. But if Paul showed up here in Wilmington, he wouldn't really preach that sermon, right? Because it's a very different place. We have different challenges. We don't have tap, uh, statues of Zeus or Poseidon all over our city, right? That's not really a thing anymore. And so we notice that um, uh, uh, there's not like a formula here. You have to be thoughtfully creative as you engage this as a church. We have to know our audience. Like we have to know the people around us. We'll talk a lot about that here at the end. But also notice like making this effort to communicate the gospel in a meaningful way does not just automatically bear fruit. Some people heard him. Some people became Christians that day, but it seemed like the vast majority still was like, nah, I don't know, Weird. This guy came back from the dead. That's a weird message. We're just going to move on. And so here's a couple of things about, I think, what it means as Christians to live out our faith today in a culturally relevant way as a church, as Emmanuel Church. Jesus said this in John chapter 17. He said, we're in the world, but not of the world. We're in the world. Our feet are here. We're actually in this place, but we're not of this place. So what that means is that we, we're not living in the world wishing to escape it, right? We don't want to escape this place. We want to be here, but not be shaped by being here. And that's the challenge of following Jesus. What this means is like we need to engage our neighbors and love our neighbors. We need to be present in our communities, be present in our city. We need to be familiar with what's going on around us, be discerning in what our culture It's trying to communicate and pass down to us. Paul could quote a Greek poet because apparently he was reading Greek poets. He was familiar 
with the writings of the secular, if you want to call them secular, writings of that day. Biblical truth can often surface in our culture, and when we see it, we can celebrate that and use it to, to communicate the good news of Jesus to modern contemporary people, just like you and I. So I'll, I'll, I'll do this, um, and I'll probably fail because, honestly, like I'm not like a cultured person. Like I just don't really listen to music or watch movies, so sorry, but I'm going to try this. This is, this is actually a joke. Your status in your relationship before God is the only thing that matters. It's the most important relationship in life. And sometimes we find ourselves wanting to be loved by others and be people pleasers, and that burns us, right? But when it comes to that way of life, as a famous poet, Taylor Swift said, players are going to play, play, haters are going to hate, just shake it off. That was my attempt at cultural relevancy. That was a joke, obviously. But the idea is like, you know, listen to some modern music, right? I don't know anything about Taylor Swift's music, literally nothing. But like Billie Eilish had a song about like the meaning of life that came out. I found this morning listening to it is actually interesting. It's like top 20 song. It's like searching a deep search for meaning and how happiness just wasn't giving it to her. And she wrote this really beautiful song about searching for the meaning of life. So that's a cultural conversation right now around us. Many of your neighbors may be listening to that song. We can engage that conversation with them, right? Does happiness really bring meaning? I don't know. Let's talk about that, right? And this is kind of the path that we can say is cultural relevancy. But as we do so, remember, you are a living letter. If you follow Jesus this morning, you are a living letter, the work of the Holy Spirit, and you're bringing him with you as you engage our neighbors and others with the good news. But also, to be a culturally relevant church, it means that we need to be prophetic. What does it mean to be a prophetic church? Know that Paul's sermon was very relevant for these Athenians, but it was also prophetic. What do I mean by prophetic in this way? It means that he was calling out the errors of what was happening in Athens, of the religious worship systems in Athens. He was calling them out. He was saying, these aren't real gods, guys. Your, your temples are full of these false gods. You're children of the true God. You, you can't make gods. You can't, you know, gods can't be adorned with, God can't be adorned with silver or gold or made of silver or gold. Like, that's not who he is. And whenever the gospel is preached and the good news of Jesus is lived out, there's always going to be a prophetic edge to it. There's always going to be a prophetic edge to it that rubs up against um, the way of life in our country and in our society. But in this context, I want to, I want to state this, right, because people can get, it's a slippery kind of place here when it comes to this call of being a prophetic church because some people think if we're to to, to, to to call out the, the errors and to speak truth into them, you can get mixed up in the ideological, if you are the you know left wing, right wing kind of camps, and think that if, if you join one of those camps and, and start kind of joining those conversations, that you are engaging in uh, you know being a prophetic Christian, that by defending certain political positions or speaking against others, that you're kind of fulfilling this. Um, I want to, I to, to speak truth today, it, it takes 
wisdom, but there's, there's a barometer, or not a barometer, there's like a, uh, a sign I want to communicate that can help you in this because um, we don't disengage from those conversations like they're real. The Bible has a lot to say about everything from climate to sexuality to like what are those conversations are today? Like there's, there's something in here to like to talk about, okay? But by engaging these things, just be careful because um, and here's kind of my, my, my testing question for you. Like if, when you engage those things, if you purely find yourself in a right-wing camp or a left-wing camp and you're just opposed to everything in the other camp, chances are you've been kind of, just be careful, you, part, you may have been captured by these, these package ideologies because as we represent Jesus on this earth, we speak truth wherever it needs to be spoken to, whether it's on the right whether it's on the left. We know that Jesus was not registered for the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. He wasn't, right? We let his truth be. We, sh- we are shaped by his truth and we share his truth regardless of whoever needs to hear it or whoever it may offend or whoever it's needed to be spoken. We don't play those ideological games and get captured by them. We get captured by Jesus. You guys awake this morning? You hear this? Because this is really important. Especially going into another big political season for us. We follow Jesus and we speak truth where it needs to be spoken to. We don't get captured by those conversations or those camps in our culture. But there's a, there's a, there's a final, as we close today, that there's, here's our ultimate example of what it means to be a culturally relevant church. And, um, and it comes with a challenge for you and I as we, on the back end of our sermon. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of cultural, being culturally relevant. And this is what I mean. You know the Christmas story, right? Born in Bethlehem, um, God becoming flesh. He took on flesh. He, He was born just like all of us were. All of us were born of a woman in this room. I guarantee it. And so is Jesus. And he became a man in order to save us, to bring us hope. God spoke through a lot of people in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. He spoke to the world through, he spoke to the world through Moses as he wrote the law. His spirit was even present in the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. But God then actually became a man. Talk about being culturally relevant. We got to, we got to, we got to see God in flesh as he lived a human life just like ours and learn about him, learn about who God is, what his kingdom is like and his power as he walked in this world, opening up the door for you and I to intimately know God, to be known by God through Jesus Christ, literally becoming a human being. The fancy word for that is incarnation, okay? So here's a challenge for us if we want to embrace the task of being a culturally relevant church, we need to be a church incarnate in our community. This is what I mean by that. We need to be a church incarnate in our community. If Jesus was willing to experience our human experience, went through everything we did, he suffered, he lost friends, he died, right? He was tempted, yet without sin. He went through everything that we experience in our life and he was willing to do that in order to relate to us, to become our high priest. When he says, I I know what it's like to go through what you're going through. I subjected myself to it and I'm here through my spirit to, to guide you and to help you. And all that was driven by his love for us. So to be a church that embodies that and the fall in the ways of Jesus, this is what that means. 
We need to take on the skin of our own community. We need to learn to share in the sufferings of our own community and to actually pick up those burdens as our burden, just like Jesus did. We need to join in the story of our community. We need to respond to the needs that are around us in the name of Jesus. We need to, to use another fancy word, contextualize this church and the gospel for the area and the people that are around us. And we do this out of love, the same love that drove Jesus to the cross, the same love that drove Jesus to become a human being. If we stay distant from our community, relationally or even culturally, while still trying to be a prophetic witness to the good news of Jesus here, we could call that an unloving path, I think. Call it an unloving path. Because our hands aren't really dirty at that point. We're just kind of at a distance talking about this Jesus person, but our hands aren't dirty with the needs of those around us. Jesus got his hands dirty. The ultimate way to be culturally relevant is through relationship, to actually know what your neighbors are going through, know their questions, like know their, like, for example, like frequent the same coffee shop regularly, okay? Go there all the time. Get to know workers. Listen to their questions. Listen to their, their needs, their worries. Listen to questions they ask about life. Hear their struggles. What do, they, what do they celebrate in life? Pray for them, befriend them, love them, right? And as opportunities come about, be able to share with them the good news of Jesus. But listen to them, right? And let the way that you talk about Jesus and embody him be then in a meaningful way for that person's life with the questions and needs that they have. Be a, po- be a part of local events in Wilmington, right? As a church, let's go and join things that are happening and get to know the issues of the city, get to know, uh, you know, what's going on around us and how we can be and share the gospel in a meaningful way in our context in Wilmington. But that's not just a job for me as your pastor, that's a job for us as a church community. And that's what I want to call us to as a church. And this next season we're walking into, let's be a culturally relevant church primarily by taking the skin on of our community and bringing Jesus to it through love and service and picking up the sufferings of those around us.